Pints with Jack, Season 3, Episode 32. Talking Beasts and the Narnia Code. Good morning, everyone. It is Thursday, and so I wanted to get out another bonus episode while large portions of the world are still in lockdown. And I was thinking about what bonus to share, and then I remembered that I never shared the interview that I gave on the Talking Beasts podcast. I did speak about it on this podcast, uh, and I did create a bonus episode explaining what I was going to be talking about, which is the Narnia Code, or sometimes called Planet Narnia. And it's the thesis of Dr. Michael Ward. Put simply, he believes that the seven chronicles of Narnia uh, correspond with the seven heavens of the medieval cosmos. So, although I'd spoken about going on the show, and although I'd post this episode explaining what the Narnia Code was, I never actually shared the audio from that interview. So, here it is now. Enjoy. Michael Ward is a man with a mission. He thinks he has cracked the Narnia Code. It was a real discovery. It was a genuine literary secret. If he is correct, this could be the most fascinating piece of literary archaeology in recent years. How do the students react? They are fascinated. You can see their jaws dropping. There are audible gasps <laughs> as they realize that there is more to Narnia than they ever dreamt. Talking Beasts from NarniaWeb.com, where we explore the world of C.S. Lewis and keep a watchful eye on the latest Narnia movie news. This is Talking Beasts. Welcome back, everyone. This is Glumpuddle, and very shortly, I'm going to be joined by David Bates from the Pints with Jack podcast, and we're going to be talking about um, a long-requested topic, and that is the Narnia Code and Planet Narnia, a very controversial issue that's been uh, around for the past decade or so. But first, really quick, Jim Fan's going to pop in. Hello. With a little announcement. Yes. So as you may have seen, Narnia Web now has a Patreon. And the reason why we have this is because for a while we've been thinking, um, how can we plan for the future um, to ensure that your voices have an opportunity, have a place to be heard and be represented by the website and the podcast. And the way that we can best do that is to ensure that our costs are covered and then also give us an, like a long-term goal so that we can just keep creating more content and just being a space for you. And yeah, we're really excited about that. I'm really excited to finally make Narnia Web ad-free. We do have uh, a number of ads <clears throat> around the website, and we've never liked that. Um, and we, I've resisted putting ads, audio ads within the podcast for a while, and I'd just rather... Um, look to you guys for support and make it just deepen that sense of community. And also we're able to offer you certain benefits, including early access to podcast episodes. Uh, donors get uh, podcast episodes about a week before everyone else. It's been really exciting to see the Talking Beast community grow so quickly. And if you're able to, and if you've enjoyed the podcast, I hope you'll consider supporting us. Yes. And it's not just about you know, it's not just about the cost. It's also about we have a lot of exciting stuff that we've been kind of working on for the future, being able to expand our content offerings and also expand more, um, more exclusive perks for you, our listeners. So please head over to our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash NarniaWeb. 
But turning to today's topic, the Narnia Code. The intriguing thing about the Narnia books is that something there doesn't quite add up. And however much you try to make sense of it, there's a missing component, quite clearly. And here it is. It exists. Someone has found it, and now uh, we're taking pictures of it, and it's on uh, page one of the newspapers, as it should be. This is, this is a great discovery. David, welcome to Talking Beasts. Oh, thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. So, and I guess I should ask you, what are you drinking today? Since that's usually how you start your shows. <laughs> it is. Well, tea, obviously. <laughs> and I am as well, actually. I have Irish breakfast here. Oh, I'm impressed. That's actually my favorite kind of tea. Okay, well, something we agree on. I think I'm pretty sure we're going to get to some disagreements here, possibly <laughs> rather shortly, so at least we agree on the tea. Um, before we get started, could you tell us a little bit about the Pints with Jack podcast? Sure. So a couple of years ago, I met uh, a guy called Matt at a party. And so Matt and I discovered our mutual love of C.S. Lewis. So we decided to start a reading group, just meet once a month over a coffee or a pint. Uh, But we quickly soon found out that these meetings, they were too short. And also people outside of San Diego wanted in. And so that's what prompted us to start a podcast, Pints with Jack, because Jack was Lewis's nickname. And so each Tuesday morning, we get together and work through a chapter of one of Lewis's works. And so far, we've gone through Mere Christianity and The Great Divorce. And next season, we'll be doing Till We Have Faces. And there'll be a link in the description. I would definitely, um, I would definitely highly recommend the podcast to anyone that has any kind of interest at all in the works of C.S. Lewis. You really don't even have to read the books. You can just listen to these podcasts, honestly. I'm kidding. <laughs> um, but one of the, the thing that really gave me the idea to have you on the show is during one of the episodes... Um, you mentioned that you'd read the Narnia Code and said, oh, we got to do an episode talking about the Narnia Code at some point. So I'm like, I'm going to beat you to it, and I'm going to have you on <laughs> um, so we can talk about it. Because both of us are, I mean, we're nerds, but at the end of the day, we're normal people. We're not scholars, and we just really, really like, you know, we're just really, really obsessed with C.S. Lewis and Narnia. So, um, in other Mostly words, normal. Yes, fairly relatively normal. Um, so basically, you and I are, the, I would say, the target audience for the Narnia Code. So um, I guess I wanted to start off by just asking, what is your sense of, well, actually, well, briefly, do you think, since you've got the cooler accent, uh, for our listeners who aren't familiar, which I think is most of our listeners based on uh, what I've seen in the Facebook group, um, do you think you could describe brief, as briefly as you can, what is Dr. Ward's uh, thesis? What is, he, what is the main thing he's saying with the book? What's his big theory about C.S. Lewis and Narnia? Sure thing. I'll I'll do my best. Uh, His central thesis is that C.S. Lewis deliberately architected the Chronicles of Narnia using imagery from the seven heavens. And this he wrote in his book, Planet Narnia, the more popular work, The Narnia Code, and there was a documentary as well. So to unpack that, we need to know what the seven heavens actually are. And so prior to the Copernican revolution of the 16th century, astronomers spoke about the seven heavens which were the seven planets which they thought revolved around the Earth. So you've got Jupiter, Mars, the Sun, which they thought was a planet, Moon, Mercury, Venus, and Saturn. Uh, and they thought that there were seven heavens because these were what they could see with the naked eye. And they greatly influenced their society. And in fact, we actually have the seven days of the week named after these planets in one language or another. And they also thought that these planets exerted an influence on people, on events, on the atmosphere, on the metals in the Earth's crust. 
And they also developed a very complex web of literary associations, qualities and attributes that stemmed from their pagan past, since these planets were regarded as gods. And Lewis, who was a man deeply acquainted with classical thought, medieval thought, he thought that these seven heavens that they had, that they were spiritual symbols that had permanent value, even after the Copernican Revolution. And so he used them in the construction of the Narniad, the Chronicles of Narnia. That's the theory anyway. Mm-hmm. That's his theory, yes. And, and, and the way that I like to describe it is Dr. Ward is saying that Lewis used the planets like an artist would use a palette, a, a, a particular feel, a, a particular set of colors. Or if this was, say, uh, pieces of music, uh, the planets determine the musical key, whether it's major or minor or its time signature or just general timbre. So it's probably easiest to explain with one of the books. So Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, Dr. Ward says that this is the uh, book for Jupiter. And the, the, the main theme of Jupiter is that of uh, kingliness. And so you find throughout the book constant references to kingship and royalty. So it's in this book that Aslan is repeatedly called the king, the king of the woods, the true king. And when the children enter Narnia, they put on these big fur coats. And Lewis even comments saying that they look like royal robes. The, the central aspect of the story on which it all turns is the temptation of Edmund, which isn't really about Turkish delight. It's about him becoming a prince and then later king. And the whole story ends in a coronation. And this entire Planet Narnia idea came when Dr. Ward was reading Lewis's poem called The Planets. And when talking about Jupiter, it said, uh, Jupiter of winter's past and guilt forgiven which sounds an awful lot like a little summary of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, of winter past, of the White Witch's winter coming to an end, and guilt, in this case, Edmund's guilt, being forgiven. Right off the bat, I just want to say there's probably a lot of listeners that are ready to slap a tinfoil hat on Dr. Ward and say, oh, it's conspiracy <laughs> theory. I've heard a dozen theories like this of hidden layer of meaning in Narnia. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not saying I agree with every single thing in the book you'll see, but I will say don't too easily dismiss it. There are obvious holes to poke in the theory like, well, did, Lewis didn't plan out the series in advance. How could this be possible? And Dr. Ward does address a lot of those. I'm not saying you'll they'll be satis- totally satisfying to you, but I will say he does address them. So I'm not saying agree with it. I'm just saying don't be too quick to dismiss it. And that, that's, that was kind of my reaction initially, and then I... Um, um, it, it was getting a lot of attention. It wasn't just going away like a lot of the other theories did. It was mm-hmm. kind of hanging around, so I decided to check it out. One of the things that turned me off to it was Ward kind of opens um, Planet Narnia by sort of saying, there's something wrong with the Narnia books. They don't quite all fit together. There's all these different elements that seem really out of place. And I read a few chapters and just, as of someone who loves the Narnia books, kind of got turned off to that. And put it down like, I love the books and think they work wonderfully. What is he talking about? <laughs> so it's interesting. The Narnia Code, he kind of softens his language quite a bit and comes at it more from the perspective of, I love these books. I, I read them when I was a kid and I loved them so much. But there are some things that don't quite add up. How would you kind of describe what 
what the the void he's trying to fill with his theory here what what's the what's the problem that he's trying to propose a solution for basically well i'll begin by saying that my introduction to this was actually a trailer an advertisement when i was back in england for the uh, the documentary of the narnia code and i remember scoffing as soon as i heard secret code of narnia immediately scoffed stupid idea don't believe it straight away um and one thing i, I think his harder language in Planet Narnia could be explained by the fact that it's A, written for a scholarly audience, but it was also that scholarly audience that was more critical of Lewis. Uh, so there were a number of complaints that people said about the Chronicles of Narnia. The first was that it was just a bit slapdash. It was a little sloppy, uh, that he had assembled these stories in a rather haphazard fashion. And Hodgepodge. A hodgepodge, yes, because when you think about it, he's drawing from all over the place. There's Greek mythology, there's Roman mythology, and right there in the first one, Father Christmas. And I'm sure we'll come back and talk about him in a little bit. Uh, But what the Narnia Code, if it's true, shows is that actually Lewis was much more imaginative and a much more careful writer than many people have credited him with. No less than his good friend J.R.R. Tolkien, who heard the few chapters and didn't like what he heard. Uh, and so that was one of the big problems. The, 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 this, it, seems, it seems haphazard. And the other puzzle, I'm going to call it puzzle rather than a problem, is a lot of people have sensed that there is some kind of pattern to the Chronicles, but they can't put their finger on it. Because there, there, there is something that binds all of these stories together, but they're also rather different. Uh, And lots of theories have been put forward. Uh, Do these seven books represent the seven sacraments, the seven deadly sins, uh, the four cardinal virtues and the three theological virtues? And so people had sensed that there was a pattern and they knew enough about Lewis to know that, well, he's a clever guy and he's capable of keeping a secret when he wanted to. Uh, So maybe that there is some other uh, underlying theme or pattern or thread or motif that we're just not seeing. I like what you said about how much credit he gives C.S. Lewis as a writer. Um, I do feel there is, that I've always said the Narnia books are criminally underrated. It's one of the things that's motivated me to do a podcast about it, mm-hmm. to get people to take another look at him. Because I do feel, I've always felt there's so much more. They're so cleverly written and so well written, they seem very, very simple, which yeah. is a great compliment, I think, to give a book. It's actually, there's a lot going on, but it, it comes across as very simple. Um, and I really love the... Um, his emphasis on atmosphere and the really sophisticated, that's really what the Narnia Code is about. It's the rather sophisticated way Lewis creates an atmosphere and a tone. And I've always said the Narnia books are nothing if not atmosphere. Um, And he, I really like the way that uh, Ward describes them, but going back to, there's something about the Narnia books that doesn't quite seem to add up or connect, which I, I see and I don't at the same time. Um, Dr. Ward's exhibit a is father Christmas. Um, did you have the same react where Dr. Ward loves the line, the witch, the orange when he, he loved it when he was a kid, but when it came to father Christmas, even as a little kid, he went, what, what's he doing there? Um, did you have the same reaction about father Christmas? Do you see it as incongruous as Dr. Ward did? Not when I was a child. So I was born and raised on Narnia. Then I rediscovered Narnia in my early twenties as I was babysitting other people's children. And I will say then, then it felt a little, a little out of place. Because, I mean, what is Father Christmas or Santa Claus, if Americans want to call him that? Uh, what's he doing there? 
Because we know that even some of Lewis's close friends, like Roger Lansing Green, try, he really tried to get him to remove Father Christmas, let them get the presents in some other way. Because how can you have a Father Christmas in a world where nobody knows about the person of Christ? Or mass, <laughs> for that matter. And so just the whole idea of Narnians talking about Christmas is kind of strange. I mean, at, at least maybe convert it so it's Aslan mass. Or, or, or like Life Day in the Star Wars Christmas special. And, <laughs> oh, gosh. And, oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> Narnia Christmas special. <laughs> not actually. Netflix, no. No, do not do that. Please do not do that. Uh, but you know, there wasn't even an attempt to try and find a, a, a parallel in Narnia for Christmas. Lewis just talks about Christmas and Father Christmas. And that just seems rather odd. It, it almost seems like an oversight, apart from the fact that we know that some of his friends tried to get him to remove Father Christmas. Yet, when we come and apply the planetary scheme, it starts making a bit more sense. Because in Lewis's lecture notes on Jupiter, he describes Jupiter as cheerful and festive. And he said that those who are born under Jupiter, they're apt to be loud-voiced and red-faced. And doesn't that sound like Santa? Isn't he probably the best personification of this jovial spirit, if this is indeed what Lewis was trying to do in that book, trying to communicate in that book? My reaction reading the beginning of it was, I mean, I can understand what he's saying. I, I did a whole podcast about it a couple of years ago about Father Christmas and does he, does, does he belong in Narnia? But I didn't. I, I, so I did have that reaction initially. And I think if you had that reaction, you're having the reaction that Lewis intended. You can tell by the way it's written where Lewis slowly does it, gives you a few hints of who it is. And finally, he tells you, you can tell mm. he's preparing you to, like I always say, throw you a curveball. He knows this is going to be kind of surprising. And so it is intended, or at least anticipated, that it's going to be a surprise. Um, so, but, so, so it is a surprise, and then the more I think about it, the more I think it does make sense. Narnia is a place where myths are real. This is the first book. There's still a lot of world building going on. So fawns, centaurs, whatever, sure, why not Father Christmas too? All the things that we have myths of and their fairy tales in Narnia, they're real. So it's one of those things that on further reflection, or actually not even reflection, I think it, 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 it's one of my, even maybe the first time, became one of my favorite scenes, and I just accepted it, even though it was initially surprising. And so it's one of those, I, and this kind of sums up my reaction to the book as a whole. I think I agree with Dr. Ward, but not quite like, okay, good point, but I don't agree with it to the extent that he's saying. Like, I agree Father Christmas is weird. I don't think it's this glaring hole that he says it is. As far as the plausibility of Christmas, I mean, ignoring the magician's nephew for a second, just ignoring the fact that eventually King Frank and Queen Helen came from our world and they could have introduced some concept of Christmas one way or another. And, you know, Lewis probably didn't know that at the time. But even ignoring that, we saw the lamppost, a very English-looking lamppost when they entered, and the White Witch says, oh, beyond those woods is the way to the world of men. It's hinted there's some kind of connection going on between Narnia and our world. I don't think it's that much of a stretch to say that there could, that somehow just as rumors of fawns and centaurs and such have leaked into our world from theirs, it's, it works in reverse as well. And somehow they have a concept of Christmas. And But either way, even without all that, just the, just the child logic of, of, you know, Father Christmas is here because the White Witch made it always winter and never Christmas. And now that Father Christmas is Father Christmas is here. That can only mean one thing: the witch's wet magic is weakening. So, the uh, the foot he got off on for me was: I see his point, but I don't think it. I see there there 
so there might be some questions you could have, or wait a minute, why is this here? This seems out of place, but I didn't think it was as glaring of a hole as he was presenting. Mm-hmm. I do like your your comment about in our world we have we have stories about centaurs and uh, spirits of trees, and I actually immediately then went to Mr. Tumnus's bookshelf with the is man a myth? Is man a myth? It's the opposite. Yeah, <laughs> it's the it's the reverse. And to me, that's the, 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 if we're talking about what's the linking thing that ties all these very different stories together. It's the idea of longing and um, for something beyond the world. Uh, and I, I find myself after reading the books asking the question, you know, why do humans keep on inventing lies? Why do we want to invent things that couldn't exist, couldn't possibly exist? Why is there this need to invent completely uh, ridiculous things like fairy tales? Why do we want to keep doing this generation after generation? Why do they keep surviving? Um, Prince Caspian, he's a prince. He's got everything. But, oh, he wishes he could have lived in the old days. Reap a cheap. Uh, he, he loves... Eat, sleep, die for my king is the motto he lives by. But the moment he gets the chance to see something beyond the world, he throws away his sword. Mm-hmm. Uh, Prince Rillian in the silver chair is underground. And even though the witch tells him, no, this world is all that there is. And she tells the kids, this world is all that there is. There is no sun. They Deep down, they know that can't be true. There, there must be such a thing as a sun. Uh, Shasta in his very bones, even though he was born... Uh, and uh, he was born in Kalorman, born far away from his home. You know, has this sense, oh, my father, what is beyond that hill? There's something I'm missing. Diggory lo- yearns to find the land of youth where his mother can be well. In the last battle, even though we, we know Narnia's got to end eventually, um, there's this hope that maybe it could go on forever and ever, but we know that this world is um, it's temporal. It can't go on forever. And I even think about the excitement I felt in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the first book, when Lucy found that... Um, Lucy finds a world in the wardrobe. And why does that make me so excited? Why do I get so excited by the idea of finding another world, especially in this mundane place? So I never felt that. I see what he's saying in a literary sense. Maybe there's something that doesn't quite connect, but I, it, it's not quite so. To me, there is this unity and that I get from it, and I don't see it as glaring of a problem as Dr. Ward says, I guess. So... The book starts off with, okay, see what you're saying. You've got a point. I'm interested, but not 100% sold on there's this giant missing piece. It was interesting the way you described lies as myths or myths as lies because that's how the younger Lewis— Well, I was exaggerating, but— (laughs) Sure, but it it, it struck a chord in me because that's how the younger Lewis would have described myths. He actually said to Tolkien that they were lies breathed through silver. So they're they're pretty and they're nice, but they're ultimately not true. And— one of the, th- the big turning points in Lewis's life was that conversation with Lewis and Hugo Dyson on Addison's Walk when he came to understand that, that there's a deeper meaning to myth, that it is a communication of, of, of truth. And in Jesus of Nazareth, myth became fact. Uh, and I also completely agree with, your, with, the, with the theme of uh, longing because that was, a, that was a theme in Lewis's own life. He called it joy or Zainzucht. And... In mere Christianity, he says that if I find within myself a desire which I know nothing in this world will satisfy me, well, then that tells me that I was made for another world. So it is certainly setting up for all of those kinds of themes. And I, 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 I agree with you in terms of the, 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 the at a literary level that Father Christmas is kind of odd. Um, but the thing is, for the two of us, that doesn't stop our enjoyment of the book. You're right. 
And that's what people listening are thinking right now. It's like, okay, this is interesting, but what do you? What, I, I enjoyed it. So why does it matter? I, I, I compare it to when you are looking at a piece of art or you're listening to uh, a, a song that you've never heard before. And there is a feature in it that surprises you. It's not that you dislike it. It just wasn't what you were expecting. And very often it can take somebody who really understands that piece to point out that there were other things going on underneath the surface uh, that brings that about. And then the, the question is, does that enhance your enjoyment or does it really make no difference? Right. And uh, one of the things I really like about, um, I like you brought up kind of that thing that, things that affect you kind of subconsciously um, and then it becomes conscious, is I love his, my, maybe my favorite thing in the book is, and what I've really gotten out of it, and the reason I would recommend this book is the way he talks about the atmosphere or the kappa element. Um, Greek word for hidden, right? Yeah. Krypton. Um, yes. Um, the thing that even though I've I've been poking holes in the, his kind of thesis so far, because you have some issues with it, um, but the thing that gives the, th- the thesis credibility for me is that um, he put the seven heavens and the way Dr. Ward describes them in, in con- the context of Narnia has given me kind of a new vocabulary to describe this atmosphere. Mm-hmm. I always talk about you know, the Narnia books are nothing if not atmosphere. Um, and I feel like that atmosphere doesn't get nearly enough attention and criticism I read about the Chronicles of Narnia. It's just the flavor. It's the tone. It's the thing that it's, it's, it's just sort of simmering there in the background. You're probably not conscious of it. You're certainly not supposed to be. And for example, um, what a wet book the silver chair is (laughs) like the first line of the book when jill pole there's a dull autumn day and jill pole was crying behind the gym and everything is wet and damp and then she gets into narnia and aslan's country and there's the scene where the tension of she wants a drink of water then she gets wet in the clouds as she's you know flying through the clouds and then of course there's puddle glum and then they get wet in the snow and there's all this everywhere throughout it in places you wouldn't expect if you really look carefully there's all this water imagery and it's sort of like, yeah, you know what? I've always thought silver chair. It's not that it's depressing exactly. What is it? What's the <laughs> word I'm looking for? It's kind of wet and damp. And so that's one example. And the sense of royalty in, in the kings and queens in that sense, and that, that kind of structure in the line of the witch in the wardrobe. Um, so that's what really makes I, – I read this thesis and I go, there's not that I agree with every single part, but there's something about this that rings true because, okay, he's uh, – there he's taking there are things that i have felt for a long time it didn't it didn't give me new feelings about the book per se but he has given me a new vocabulary to articulate how i've always felt and so that's the thing that makes me want to go even though there are some things about this thing i don't know if i totally agree with or i'm suspicious of wow i I think there probably is something to this so that's the thing i would wreck even if you don't agree with his basic thesis his exploration of trying to describe the atmosphere and the feel and the flavor of narnia i i thoroughly enjoyed that and got a lot out of it absolutely and he even told us about this because he wrote an essay called on stories and that was based on another paper that he wrote about the kappa element in romance this kappa this hidden the greek word krypton this hidden element in a in a story that you could, you've used a lot of the, of the words, atmosphere, flavor, tone, spirit. It's that thing that's everywhere in a story, but it's never actually explicit. Uh, as I was actually reading Dr. War's book, uh, at the end of each chapter, I would go and listen to Gustav Holst's The Planets. So I'd listen to the corresponding. And it's the same in the music. You have a feel for each of the planets. When you listen to uh, the, the, the song of Mars, 
you f- you feel the military drums, you, the, the 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 whole flavor of that martial element of Mars. It's just everywhere. Mm-hmm. So all that's great. I love the talk about atmosphere, and I really feel that I, I appreciate. Uh, how much credit he's giving Lewis as a writer. But let's cut to the chase here. Uh, do we, at the end of the day, do we agree with Dr. Ward's thesis, which is basically that C.S. Lewis deliberately constructed uh, the seven Narnia books out of uh, out of the seven heavens in a very kind of conscious way, and he calls it the Narnia Code. Uh, how would, David, do you think that is actually true after reading the book? Has Dr. Ward convinced you? I think he basically has. Uh, I think that there are some things that are, in my mind, definitely now without question. The idea of Lewis and his Kappa element, his setting up of an atmosphere in each of the books. One, I think the Kappa element, it sounded like it was, it was a game changer for you when you started seeing, seeing that construction. I'd say it's very true for me as well. Uh, also, just the influence of the heavens seems to me to be very clear. Um, there, are, there are enough things in the books that are odd, slightly odd, slightly incidental that fit very neatly within his system. Uh, I've, I've read some criticisms of the Narnia Code, and very often they, they, they complain when they see uh, a mercurial image in the book that's meant to be about Jupiter, or a sun image that's all meant to be about the moon. And uh, to, for me, that's not a defeater, uh, just simply because there isn't an absolutely perfect one-to-one association. Again, going back to those images that I, I gave at the beginning, the idea of an artist uh, painting a picture. It's a unique picture, but it's with a particular palette. Uh, you shouldn't be surprised if you see other features of that artist. He is going to naturally come through. But still, I think the, ov- the overall feel of the picture is going to be driven by that palette. Yeah, I, I really think the Narnia palette, maybe it's not quite as sexy of a title, but I really <laughs> think that describes what I suspect to be the truth a little better Um, because I I think that after like a lot of my reaction to the book reading it was he'd make a good point oh that's very interesting and then he would just take it like three steps too far (laughs) and broadly speaking so do has the book convinced me I was kind of on the fence until just you know several weeks ago really because I I'd read large chunks of Planet Narnia and I'd seen the documentary I'd seen Dr. Ward in podcasts and such but just several weeks ago I finally sat down read the Narnia Code all the way through for myself um, what I would say is I think there is very probably something to this I would say um, C.S. Lewis very likely if the way Dr. Ward presents the research about the seven heavens and if he's portraying that accurately not just cherry picking the stuff that supports his thesis if all that's accurate the way he presents it um, then yes very very likely C.S. Lewis was influenced by the imagery of the seven heavens, and that's about as far as I would take it. But Dr. Ward, I do think, takes it a few steps further and makes it a code and presents it as something you expect to have this mathematical precision to. Um, and I don't think... Go ahead. Well, I, I actually think the, the word that you used there was that the planets influence Lewis, which is so beautifully Influenza. appropriate because yes, that's, that was on how, purpose. that's how the medievals viewed the planets. They had an influence. It doesn't necessarily mean that yeah, everything is absolutely preordained, but there is an influence on Lewis in the same way that he offers planetary influences in his own books. 
and artists do that all the time. Like a screenwriter might listen to certain music or watch certain movies if they're trying to figure out how should this scene feel. Um, a recent example that comes to mind is the Joker movie was obviously very influenced by Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver film from the 80s. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm going to that we should write a book called The Joker Code. And it's about, you know, The Joker Code is about it's actually Taxi Driver. It makes the whole movie fit together. No, that the, that Taxi Driver was a very key influence that helped them create something else. It was a means to an end. Um, and that happens all the time. Um, and so I think that very likely, Lewis, in creating a fantasy world, which is, not an e- which is not an easy thing to do, create a completely new fantasy world from scratch, use the imagery of the seven heavens as a source of inspiration. But the, at the end of the day, they are a means to an end. They were helping him tell a story. So I really love your choice of palette. Um, I think that that is probably more accurate to what's actually going well, on there. Let, let, let me tell you what I think. There, there are two pieces of evidence which I give me a greater level of certainty than I feel that you have. Uh, the first one is the smoking gun in an early manuscript that Walter Hooper found in the Bodleian Library. It was an early version of the silver chair. And in that story, the, cho- the children, as they, as they are underground, they see Father Time. And... In the earlier manuscript that Walter Hooper, Lewis's secretary, found, he's not called Father Time. He's called the God Saturn. And yet, by the time that book comes to be published, the name has been changed. And all of this is setting it up for three books' time when Father Time will come and bring about the apocalypse in Narnia. To me, that, that, that smells like a plot. That seems like Lewis was planning something. Well, right, and I think that... Um Again, I think he was influenced by them probably um, consciously in the same way that a screenwriter might make a decision to play certain kinds of music to inspire them to make a scene a certain way. Um, I just don't think it's uh, um, this mathematical formula. Um, and again, a means to an end. Mm-hmm. I, I just, a, a means to get, ultimately get somewhere else and tell a story. It's not the end in and of itself. He tries a little too hard to make it work perfectly with mathematical precision. And he's prone to exaggerate and stretch, I think. Uh, and it makes me a little suspicious of some of his research. You know, obviously all this stuff, especially about the seven heavens, is stuff that I haven't done a ton of research on, so I just kind of have to take his word for it. Mm-hmm. This is I'm way out of my depth here. When he talks about, oh, Prince Caspian, the Mars, this is so such a Martian book, the feel of it, that's just like how people thought of Mars. I just kind of go, okay, I'll take your word for it, <laughs> that that's an accurate summary. But on occasion... He will go into something that I do know quite a bit about, and usually when that happens, I go, I don't know if that's fair. I think you're stretching. For example, um, like I can't. I think I think he says it in the book, but certainly in talks he's done, he'll say, C.S. Lewis absolutely was capable of doing something really elaborate like this and keeping it a secret. Did you know that C.S. Lewis kept his marriage a secret from his friends? And then the audience kind of chuckles, and that's and that's it. The full story behind that is C.S. Lewis legally married Joy when they were just friends because she was going to get deported um, back to the United States. So all they did, they went to the courthouse, they signed a piece of paper that said they were married, and they lived in separate houses, and they weren't actually married. It was just a legal thing so that she could stay in the United States. Then later, they fell in love and married each other for real in the eyes of God, as they, they would think of it. So like, it seems like this remarkable, wow, Lewis must have been the secretive guy, kept this marriage a secret. But... If you add the extraordinary context, it's not that remarkable. 
Um, and so that's where I feel like, and there's another example, there's a few other examples like that. Like it, it, at one point he says that he's saying that there's a lot of Aslan running in the horse and his boy, but Jesus was never seen running. And he, exclamation point in the book, like it's this mic drop moment. Well, Jesus didn't have claws or a mane or a tail either. I mean, <laughs> it's a symbol. So whenever I, I come to something that I kind of feel like I can understand, I'm usually going, you're not 100% wrong, but you're stretching and you're exaggerating and, de-em- and emphasizing the things that support your thesis and de-emphasizing the things that don't. And that does make me look at some of his other research where I'm out of my depth with a little bit of suspicion. So again, I think the core of what he's arguing is probably true, but I think he's exaggerated and stretched it maybe a bit too much. I think I would say, as with the examples he gives, a lot of it's it's cumulative. So yeah, Lewis kept his marriage secret with joy. Uh, There's also the question among his friends as to his relationship with Mrs. Moore, uh, the mother of uh, a fallen comrade of his, and a lot of people suspected that they had a secret liaison. Uh, Actually, one of Lewis's friends, Humphrey Hallard, uh, he said that Surprised by Joy, which was Lewis's spiritual biography, should have rather have been called Suppressed by Jack. Um, and Lewis, he also wrote under pseudonyms. He said when he was talking about uh, communicating Christianity, he said that it can sneak past people's watchful dragons. And he also wrote a story, I can't remember what it's called, but he wrote a story to Arthur Greaves, uh, who's his pen friend from back in Ireland. And he said, as was proper in romance, the inner meaning is carefully hidden. So... I take your point. I'll just say that a lot of these things are cumulative. Sure. And, I, 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 and I'm arguing that the essence of what he's arguing, I think, is true. Lewis was influenced by the seven planets. But I think he spends a lot of the book trying to apply that to every single detail. And I think that was um, – I don't quite buy it when he gets into the weeds there. I buy the broad, oh, this atmosphere Lewis has created lines up with the seven heavens. I, I largely buy that. I just don't – when he gets into the weeds, I kind of go – I, 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 he kind of loses me. And he, he, he spe- sorry, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say an example of, of a weed, and this is the second thing that I think convinces me, is when I look at some counterfactuals, the how could this be have been otherwise? So in Prince Caspian, when I think it's Susan finds the chess piece, and this is one of the things that really helps them understand that they're back at Care Paravel, uh, what piece is it? It's a knight, which if Dr. Ward is right and that this is a martial book, so it's all about knights and chivalry and war, that's obviously the piece he's going to find. Whereas I've got to say, if I wasn't thinking about that, and I would say that these kings and queens are returning to their castle uh, that has changed dramatically, I might go for either a rook or more likely a king or a queen to be the piece that's found. Some people might not find that incredibly convincing, but that would have been my instinct and so if I zigged and Lewis zagged... Sure, some of them... Oh, interesting. A few details are very interesting. But there's other ones like... just I don't still think it's remarkable that Aslan ran and see it, and Jesus didn't. I just don't think I, that's I don't that remarkable. That book. <laughs> I'll, I'll oh, it's, it's a big exclamation point at the end. I was kind of like, come on. There's a few, <laughs> a few others like that in the book. Um, but he spends a lot of time trying to make it seem plausible that Lewis would keep something secret, a hidden meaning, a hidden code. And for me, that just wasn't necessary. Um... I mean, example off the top of my head, Chris Nolan doesn't like to do audio commentaries, director of Inception, Memento, the Dark Knight trilogy, recently Dunkirk. He doesn't do audio commentaries because he just doesn't like to talk about his movies that much. He'd rather let it stand on its own. He'll talk about the making of process and all that, but doesn't like to talk a lot about the ideas behind it because he wants you to go see it and have your opinion of it and let the art speak for itself. And there's all kinds of things in there of 
and di- and different themes woven in. And I don't think it's this elaborate code he's constructed. I just think it's ideas he's trying to get into his story. I don't think it, again, I think Dr. Ward presents it in a very mathematical way that that's not usually how the creative process works. I don't think it was the main thing that motivated everything. So it probably wasn't forefront in his mind. Um, but I, I, I doubt it was something he very intentionally kept secret, just not something he talked about often because it was a means to an end, not the end in and of itself. I like your palette thing better. Maybe you can, uh, <laughs> one day we can rebrand it the Narnia palette or something like that <laughs> and profit off of Dr. Ward's research. I'm just kidding. Not actually. Um, I guess last thing I'd ask is, why does it matter? Imagine someone's listening to this and they're all going, okay, true or not, this is interesting, but so what? Does it make Puddle Glum a better character? Does it make uh, the end of Don Treader more sad? Does it make Aslan's death more sad? Does it make the snow dance more uh, jolly? Does it, um, like, what does this add? Why should I care? Does this make the books better somehow? How, how would you respond to that? Uh, add a little think about this. And one of the things that I love about this is it's 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 a it's a arrow in my quiver to get people to read the Chronicles of Narnia. Because whenever I give a talk on Lewis, the Screwtape Letters, Miracles, Mere Christianity, some of his apologetics work, people often say, what book should I start with? What would you recommend if I haven't read any Lewis before? And I always encourage people to read the Chronicles of Narnia. And I try and stop them because I can immediately see them pulling their face. It's like, don't just dismiss this because it's children's literature. And earlier I would say, I would just quote Lewis, who said that if... If literature wasn't worth reading, if children's literature isn't worth reading as an adult, it certainly isn't worth reading as a child. And this is definitely worth it. But with the Narnia Code, with Planet Narnia, I can tell people, listen, he was doing some very clever things in this book. It is therefore worth you reading. Don't just dismiss it as children's children's material. Uh, speaking personally, I think I, after reading this book, it's made me go back to the Chronicles of Narnia and with a little bit more attention to detail. Because uh, a lot of the things that Dr. Ward points out, I hadn't really noticed before. I think prior to this, if you'd asked me, what chess piece do they find in the ruins of Caparavel? I couldn't have told you. Um, and so there's a delightful way in which, in the same way when you're watching a movie and they have flashbacks at the end that show you what you missed that was in plain sight uh, and the enjoyment that, that comes from that, uh, I would say that's one of the things that I've enjoyed as I've come back to these books. And like you, found that I now have uh, a, a larger vocabulary to describe what I love about these books, what Lewis is doing to me through them, um, and just to see how much deeper they were than I ever saw before. And, you know, we've always enjoyed these books, but particularly having conversations like this, we now get to contemplate them, uh, enjoy them anew in a different way. Yeah, I would agree with, I would echo a lot of that and say that, look, if you're one of those readers that just goes, I mean, I would think if you're listening to a Narnia podcast on a regular basis, you're probably not one of these readers, but anyone that just says, look, I just enjoy reading the books, great characters, great stories, and this is interesting, but whatever, I don't care. That's fine. Go reread the books, enjoy them. Um, but I will say it, it, it matters whether you choose to invest a lot of time thinking about it or not. Um, that it, it does matter because of, and I love how the way Dr. Ward talks about this in the book, where these books have been read by so many people. Why are these books still around? What is it that keeps us bringing us back to them again and again and again because of the cultural impact these books have had? And also for me personally, because of the impact these books have had on my life, it's worthwhile saying, 
why? Why have these affected me the way that they have? And I think um, these, uh, the Narnia Code has, get, like I said, given me a new way of a deeper level of understanding on why that is and describing that hidden element that's subconscious. Um, that's what good art does, storytelling in particular. It puts images to concepts that are difficult to put into words. I think that's what the Narnia books do, and Dr. Ward is helping us understand um, how it is that Lewis did that. It's a lot like the real impact of when you go see a magic show, the magician wants you to be fooled, and as an audience member, we kind of want to be fooled too, and we experience it. We go, wow, how did he make the magician make that person disappear? And that's the way we initially experience it. And then later we can think through, wait a minute, how did that happen? How did he trick me into thinking that someone disappeared when I know obviously that wasn't the case. So I've had that experience many times of seeing C.S. Lewis's magic show, and now <laughs> Dr. Ward is kind of helping it understand what was happening with that illusion. And I read the book enough times where I don't, I don't mind the illusion being spoiled so much. Um, the, the sum of all this is um, uh, I know I've poked some holes in it, and I, it might sound like I've been kind of criticizing it, and there are some issues I have with it, but on the whole, really fascinating book that anyone who uh, loves the Chronicles of Narnia um, and thinks they're worth another look, I would definitely recommend it. It's book, it's book's not that, the Narnia Code, is, it's not that long. It's pretty easy to read. I would recommend checking it out. Whether you agree with his thesis or not, I think you will be glad you read it. And if you really, really enjoy it want even more, then you can check out Planet Narnia, which is the much more scholarly, kind of really get into the weeds um, kind of work. And I'd say if nothing else, it's going to open you up to all of other all of Lewis's other works. So if you've never read the Cosmic Trilogy, the Ransom Trilogy, when you're talking about planets, as you're reading this book, you're going to want to go and read that. If you haven't read his academic work, like The Discarded Image, where Lewis unpacks the symbolism behind the planets, you now have a motivation to go and read that book. Same reaction. This made me want to reread the Narnia books right away and also and check out some of Lewis's other works that I haven't read or at least haven't read in a while. Um, so, And I would think, Dr. Ward, if he's listening, I would think that would be uh, something he would definitely want to hear. <laughs> um, Dr. Ward, definitely a lot smarter than me, a, a, lot, uh, a lot more knowledgeable of C.S. Lewis's uh, work than I am. Obviously knows a lot about Narnia. Uh, but right now we're going to find out how much you know about Narnia, Mr. Bates. Oh, no. Are you ready for your stump question, David? Not really, but let's get this over with. David, which of the Chronicles of Narnia books includes the word Narnia the greatest number of times? Oh my goodness. So let's think about this. So Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, they keep introducing the children to Narnia, why this is Narnia from the lamppost, etc. Um, Prince Caspian, they keep talking about conquering Narnia. In the last battle, they keep talking about how they wish Narnia could go on forever and ever, but this is going to be a new Narnia. Hmm. Okay, I'm going to swing for the fences. I am going to say the last battle. So you're saying the last battle contains the word Narnia the greatest number of times. Is that your final answer? That is my final answer. Well, David, you are correct. Yes. It is the last battle. <laughs> Four bonus points. Do you want to guess how many times it has the word Narnia? Oh, my goodness. No. Um, 
I'm going to say 16 times. Uh, it's actually 170. Holy. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Wow. Rounded down a little bit. <laughs> uh, it, uh, in second place is the horse and his boy with 134. Oh my, that's way more than I was expecting. David, thank you so much for being on the show. Again, uh, highly recommend the Pints with Jack podcast, and maybe we'll have you back one of these days. That would be delightful. You've been listening to Talking Beast, the Narnia podcast from narniaweb.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and give us five stars on iTunes. Post a comment below or in the Talking Beast Facebook group. Visit patreon.com slash narniweb to support this podcast and get exclusive content, including early access to episodes. You can also email us at podcast at narniweb.com, glumpuddle at narniweb.com, or jimfan15 at narniweb.com. Special thanks to AJ Aiken. We'll be back with our season finale on December 17th. Until then, further up and further in. Well, there we go. I hope you all enjoyed that. And just to conclude this episode, I'm very pleased to say that Dr. Ward himself will be coming on this podcast in 2021 to talk about his new upcoming book. But until then, we'll be bringing you episodes every week and we'll continue to go further up and further in. Cheers.